Welcome to Digest and Invest, the podcast from eToro that brings you the top financial stories and discusses their effect on the markets. The content that will be discussed is intended for information and educational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice or investment recommendation. Make sure you understand the risks involved in trading before committing any capital and never risk more than you are prepared to lose. Past performance is not an indication of future results. And now on to the podcast. Hello and welcome for another episode of the Digest and Invest podcast. As usual, I'm joined by Josh Gilbert, our market analyst based out in Sydney. But we have not one, but two incredibly special guests with us today. Anthony Pompliano, or Pomp, better known as, is an entrepreneur, an investor who has built and sold numerous companies, run product and growth at teams such as Facebook and Snapchat, and has invested over $100 million in early stage technology companies. Pop now spends the majority of his time identifying and supporting great founders. He has invested in over 100 early stage companies, including multiple unicorns. Pop manages a portfolio at more than $500 million in value and continues to aggressively invest in teams that are trying to solve hard problems. His podcast has been downloaded over 20 million times, Josh, that's our new target, uh, and writes a daily letter to over 150,000 people. We also have our very own Yoni Asia, CEO of eToro, the world's leading social trading platform. Yoni showed uh, an interest in finance and computer science since youth and so decided to merge his passions. Yoni is a member of the YPO and has included uh, in uh, by the Financial Times in its prestigious FinTech 40 ranking and by City AM as a FinTech 100 top influencer. He holds a BSc in Computer Science and Management and MSc in Computer Science. Yoni also famously bought Bitcoin in single figures. Uh, go and check his pinned tweet for reference. Pomp, Yoni, how are we doing? Awesome. I did not buy Bitcoin in single dollar uh, figures, so Yoni's doing better than I am. <laughs> no, I, th- I think you went more all in, though. I- I'm a crypto conservative. <laughs> How, what, what's the breakdown between uh, stocks and crypto now? Mine, uh, roughly, well, now, because crypto corrected down, I think it's about 50-50. You can check it in uh, on my public portfolio. 50-50 is <laughs> not bad, right? Yeah. Though a lot of the Bitcoin and Ethereum is from profits. I take profits, I shave off from the profits, put it into stocks. That's why I call myself crypto conservative. Ah, do you, when it hits 50%, do you, uh, you just auto rebalance? Like, how do you do it? Uh, Not auto, it's not auto rebalance, but, uh, you know, when you see something going from, you know, Bitcoin from, I don't know, $500 to $50,000, you feel it's a bit prudent to shave off the top. Or you could put more in. Yeah, <laughs> and that's that's why I, that's why you have more Bitcoin than I do. <laughs> All right, Sam, Josh, what you got for us? Well, I guess, but we better start Super Bowl. Both there last week, weren't you? What do we think? How how was it? Oh, Yoni, you were there. Yeah, it was awesome. We had an ad. Hey, we we saw the Super Bowl best halftime show ever. I, the Super Bowl halftime show was definitely much better. I was laughing with my brothers that uh, it seemed like the people of L.A. were much more interested. They all kind of rushed to the edges of uh, of their uh, kind of areas to watch the halftime show compared to the football game itself, which I guess in L.A. is uh, should be expected. But the game was great and the halftime show was great as well. 
Very good, very good. Um, well, yeah, as you said, Johnny, first uh, ad for eToro um, on the Super Bowl. Probably one of many to many to come. Um, but Pomp, we'll, we'll start with you. Um, tell us a little bit about your journey with Bitcoin. Um, so from memory, um, you sold some Facebook shares, I think, in the beginning to buy some crypto mining equipment. Tell us a little bit about that and, and your interest with Bitcoin and, and sort of how it first came about. Yeah, my short story is uh, somebody pitched me on uh, mining, but not from like the crypto angle. It was more so just like this is a data center on steroids, right? So kind of better economics. And so uh, I went ahead and uh, I sold my Facebook uh, stock that I'd gotten from working there. Um, it had gone up a bunch, similar to kind of Yoni's perspective. I think it was up, you know, uh, 250, 300% or something since I had gotten the uh, uh, kind of award. Um, and I basically, from what I remember, I put like 50% in cash and 50% I went and I bought some machines and, and started to, uh, to mine. And it was kind of one of these things of like, that was going to be my cash flow investment. And then I was going to go focus on venture investing. And I uh, started mining Ether first uh, and it went from like I don't know, eight or 10 bucks to like 30 to 100 by you know May of 2017. And I remember literally just being like, what is going on? Like, like what is what is this thing that I'm holding? And uh, I sold it all at like 150 bucks, like a uh, like an absolute genius. Right. Is, uh, you know, kind of 10, 15 X, uh, depending on where I mined it. And I thought I was uh, golden. And then it went to fourteen hundred dollars uh, by the end of the year, and I was like, "I am the dumbest person ever. What am I doing? Why did I sell this? Uh, the whole thing." So uh, that was really kind of how I got started. And, and uh, fortunately, uh, as I watched uh, my uh, my fake would be profits uh, go up and then ultimately come all the way back down, uh, I did a lot of learning along the way, and so uh, started to uh, to buy uh, Bitcoin specifically. Uh, in um, Q4 of 2018, kind of the bottom of the bear market. And the thought process was literally, uh, you know, in a super sophisticated way, like what well, already fell 80%, like how much more could it fall? <laughs> right? And, uh, and was fortunate enough to, you know, kind of uh, just time it right. Uh, and, and then from there, um, it kind of just continued. Nice. Very good. Very good. Um, so, Interestingly, um, you know, obviously, you, you both of you started sort of really early, uh, obviously in the in the crypto verse. Um, but obviously, as we know, sort of retail investors have sort of only really started to get involved, uh, you know, in a big way in the last sort of few years. I guess twenty seventeen was really that that start, and then twenty twenty was was again the the next sort of big peak. Uh, we recently surveyed a range of sort of global retail investors, um, not just at Etoro, um, you know, global retail investors. And 26% of those investors from that survey uh, were buying crypto. So 26% were, were buying crypto at that time. So from our perspective, that was pretty high, uh, again, across a, you know, a pretty big range. Um, but you may see that as still sort of pretty low. So how do we go from 26% of people uh, buying Bitcoin to 50%? What do you think that catalyst is? And, and how do we sort of change the perception of Bitcoin? Yoni, what do you think? I, I think governments are doing the work for us. Um, and I think, uh, you know, my view is eventually Bitcoin is a hedge against governments. It's a, it's a hedge against inflation. Whenever eventually, uh, right now we see Bitcoin tied to the markets, and that's because we were all very happy to bring in institutional investors into crypto. And now that's the first thing that they're selling. But I think in the long term, people will see that where real instability, medium term, long term instability awakes in certain regions, that's what's really driving retail towards crypto. 
That was literally going to be my response was uh, just look to Canada. seems like uh, Justin Trudeau is the CMO of, uh, of Bitcoin right now, right? And it's basically two things I think end up uh, being huge catalysts. One is price and two is uh, opportunities where people realize specific aspects of Bitcoin. So I saw a tweet, uh, I think it was uh, Dennis Porter or somebody uh, said, you know, when they printed trillions, people woke up to the fact that Bitcoin, there's only 21 million, right? Uh, or there's a programmatic monetary policy. Now, when there's a bunch of financial censorship that goes on, there's a bunch of people waking up to the fact that it's censorship resistant technology. And so uh, I always have said that like the biggest, most important thing for Bitcoin is just time. Like just allow time to continue. People get more familiar with it. It'll seem less risky. It'll kind of seep its way into culture. Uh, the economic incentives take over. But, you know, another part, which I hadn't previously really thought about, but but is true as well, is just like the world will keep pushing people to learn about it. Right. And so whether it's governments, whether it's central banks, um, you know, a whole bunch of different things. So I, I definitely agree that that is a, a benefit of the chaos, unfortunately. Yeah, for sure. That, that, that same survey that, that Josh mentioned, I think there was uh, around about 25 percent or a quarter of people that said they didn't invest in crypto because of volatility. So if. Say we had a, a couple of random people join this call and they would say, look, I, I want to invest in crypto, but it's too volatile. What would what would you both sort of say to that to almost reassure them? Yeah, I mean, my, my response is pretty simple. It's like every asset is volatile when you compare it to other assets, right? Volatility is usually uh, determined by kind of relative comparison. And so the U.S. dollar was super volatile last year. It crashed, you know, 30 percent against stocks. It crashed. 25% against real estate. It crashed 65% against Bitcoin, et cetera. People don't think of it that way just because the dollar is the same unit of account that all of the assets and goods and services around them are priced in. So we tend to think of $1 equals $1. Um, but the purchasing power definitely went down significantly. And so Bitcoin's similar in that if you are comparing it to dollar-denominated assets, there's volatility. If you simply look at uh, kind of Bitcoin denominated goods, services, assets, then one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. You don't see that volatility. But I think that uh, it's hard to break, you know, bad habits, right? And so we all think in terms of a fiat currency, whether it's dollar, euro, whatever. And so we, we naturally think of uh, Bitcoin in that way as well, but that might not be the right way to think about it. I love to that uh, if you can stand the heat, get out of the kitchen and <laughs> risk and, and risk and reward are linear. If you want to generate double-digit returns, you have to accept uh, a double-digit vol and double-digit potential losses. If you're looking for triple-digit returns, you have to accept 100% potential vol and potentially losing uh, uh, all of your investments. That's just math. And from that standpoint, people need to understand it's a, it's a highly volatile asset, so it's risky, but that's also the opportunity moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. I think we mentioned it a minute ago. Um, I think Pomp, you brought it up in terms of the sort of the, the Canada situation and uh, the freezing of the bank accounts. And over the last few weeks, we've also had sort of the geopolitical tensions, Russia, Ukraine sort of really come to a head in the last sort of few days. And, and obviously, crypto's uh, acting as a sort of that risk asset at the moment. It's under pressure. It's um, obviously struggling a little bit. Um, but I think what's what's really important to know is that I think this highlights Bitcoin's main goal, right? Um, transparent, open source, peer-to-peer -peer network, not controlled by a single administrator. And also, 
um you know pretty much everything i've had from you know inbound requests from the press over the last sort of week has been okay how is this russia and ukraine situation going to affect crypto um but as i say do we believe that this just highlights bitcoin's main goal when we have these geopolitical tensions and it's really easy i think to make kind of broad-based predictions of the future but the short answer is like we don't know um on top of that i think also um, there's this element of uh, Bitcoin is for your allies and your enemies. And so I think that we have to remember that it's a piece of technology, good and bad people, people we agree with and disagree with use the internet. Doesn't mean that we should uh, say the internet's good or bad, right? I think Bitcoin's kind of falling in that as well. And so early on in these technologies, people will try to pigeonhole it. You know, Bitcoin's used by uh, the alt-right. Bitcoin's used by terrorists. Bitcoin's used by criminals. Bitcoin's used by, you know, name your country that uh, that journalist doesn't like. And ultimately, it's available to everybody. It's an open source piece of technology that anyone can, can leverage. Now, with that said, I, I definitely think uh, the world is waking up to this idea that, you know, the United States right now is sanctioning Russia uh, and a number of Russian individuals, Russian uh, entities and organizations. On almost the exact same day that that was announced, uh, China announced sanctions against Raytheon uh, and another defense contractor, right? At the same time that that was occurring, the Canadian government was sanctioning some of their citizens that helped to organize a protest. And so when you look at that, like we have countries sanctioning countries, we have countries sanctioning uh, adversaries, uh, kind of corporations, we have countries sanctioning their own citizens, like the world is just kind of waking up to this idea that we can use financial censorship uh, as a tool in the toolbox. And so uh, it happened here in the United States, right? How many uh, people that were considered either alt-right or, you know, extremist uh, on the other side of the aisle, or, you know, they, they had some unsympathetic view uh, that majority of Americans disagreed with, and they got removed, whether it was from a single banking application uh, or from the entire financial system. Like, the more that gets normalized, I think the more people start to say, like, well, what's the other solution, right? And, and ultimately, I think technology has to provide a solution. I think Bitcoin is, uh, you know, the clear winner in terms of that censorship resistant, et cetera. But I think there will be other types of technologies that get created that people say, look, I, I need not just decentralized money, what else can I do with technology to reestablish uh, my ability to transact and, and to kind of access a financial system? I think, by the way, Bitcoin acts in, in that way a bit like Hydra. So you, you try to cut off one head, you get like a couple of heads. And that's because what people assume they can do with Bitcoin, what trying to block it is create more sanctions, more censorship. And we'll see more and more governments trying to block something that's inevitable because people will eventually find access to the internet and access to Bitcoin. Uh, so it, and, it, and it just reaffirms that need. Yeah, for sure. Um, obviously, another thing that's, that's been in the news at the moment is the Fed. Some people call them the most powerful group of people in the world. Whether that is true or not is, is up for debate. But how, how do you both see uh, short, medium term, these, these rate hikes, the quantitative tightening really affecting Bitcoin and, and the crypto market for, for all of our listeners? What, what would your, you know, your view be and, and, and advice for those people that may be holding the, those assets? I don't think that they know uh, what they're going to do in the future and neither do any of us. 
there's many people who would argue that that's a positive, kind of this idea of a variable monetary policy means that you can have uh, elasticity in your response to various economic conditions. You can you know, uh, expand and contract the monetary supply. You can go ahead uh, and you can uh, manipulate interest rates, et cetera. I think that uh, that is a true statement if you uh, are operating with perfect information, you can ensure that the decisions you make are correct, right? But as we have seen in the past, uh, there's a lot of questions around whether that's true or not. And so if that's not true, then you get to this point where uh, maybe it's better to have a rigid kind of programmatic monetary policy. Uh, and the beauty of what we're watching play out here is the free markets at play. People get to choose. Either I want a variable monetary policy or I want a programmatic one. And what most people are choosing, frankly, you know, similar to what Yoni and I were talking about earlier, is they choose both, right? They, they want some of their assets in a programmatic one and they want some of their assets in a variable monetary policy. And the reason why that's good is because, frankly, uh, diversification usually ends up being a risk mitigator, right? And so, like, the world loves black and white or either or, but I, I think in this case, you're getting both, which ends up being a pretty positive. My assumption, by the way, is they're going to start raking heights and uh, they'll figure out relatively quickly that they're killing the markets uh, and they'll look at history and they'll look at the lost decades of Japan and they'll say, if we continue, you know, hiking rates, what we'll see, we'll lose the entire growth in the U.S. economy and, and, and they'll stop. I am highly doubtful we're ever going to see significant rates coming back, like north of 4% or 6% or 8%, I think. That's a piece of history, and we're more probable to see negative interest rates, which is probably the better thing, more equal thing to do, uh, and let people make their money in investing in real estate or crypto, rather than increasing interest rates, which really improves uh, uh, well, improves the, the wealthier people, those who don't have debt, right? So the majority of the people have debt, rather assets. So when you increase rates, you actually hurt more the population who is already getting hurt by inflation and you're increasing inequality, which is probably the worst thing that could happen. Yeah, and I guess that sort of leads on to, to the next question. Um... Do, do we believe that, that Bitcoin will be used as a currency in the future? You know, it's being used in El Salvador right now. Um, you know, but can we see really the US Fed adopting Bitcoin in the future? Or do we believe that they'll move towards a CBDC? How, how do you both see that? Um, again, Bitcoin may be used further in sort of maybe those uh, countries such as like Brazil, Nigeria, these sorts of places. But, the, but can we really see it as a currency in the future? Yoni? I, I think governments, especially big governments, are gonna are going are not going to let go that fast of their own currency and monetary policy. I think CDBC is inevitable. We'll see most developed nations create their own CDBC, but I think some places uh, will adopt Bitcoin uh, probably as a secondary uh, 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 means of payment or currency in their country. Yeah, I, I think my read on it is like Bitcoin is already a currency, right, in, in some way in that it serves uh, debatably as good or bad uh, medium of exchange, store of value and unit of account. And it's not necessarily a unit of account everywhere. Uh, it, it's not necessarily 
um, you know, the best store of value or the worst store of value. I, I think to everyone, it's different. Again, there's some relative comparison, uh, but I use it as a currency, right? Yeah, I, me too. I, I think they're asking, are we going to see government saying, okay, let's, let's get rid of the US dollar or the Euro and use only Bitcoin. And I think yeah. that's probably a bit uh, far-fetched for developed countries, maybe for much smaller ones. Yeah, I, I, look, I think that there's, uh, again, not either or, it's both, right? So I kind of, yeah. the El Salvador model is probably where we end up, which is they say, hey, we're going to recognize this as legal tender. We're also not going to get rid of what we already have and let our citizens decide. And frankly, that's probably a pretty good strategy, right? And El Salvador is reporting that GDP grew 30% last year, right? Uh, wow. Year over year. And so, uh, again, you know, there's people who will dismiss it, six and a half million people population, small country. It's, you know, doesn't take that much for a couple of Bitcoiners to travel there and spend some money and, and kind of, you know, really, you know, move the needle. Uh, but at the same time, if they grow 30% year over year for a decade, right, and they continue to do that because they're a leader in this, I think a lot of people are saying, damn, that's, uh, that's pretty great, right? Like maybe we should, uh, we, we, we should get on top of this. So I, I think that's what we're watching really is uh, the addition it's actually additive, not extractive. Um, and that's a good thing for, for most uh, parties. For sure, for sure. Yoni, I know you had um, a couple of questions for, for Pomp. So yeah, we can move on to, on to those. But my questions are quite similar because I know you are extremely pro Bitcoin. Uh, laser eye pump, very clear. Uh, and, and, but I know you're also investing in sort of other protocols, et cetera. Give us your view of Bitcoin versus the rest that, you know, Ethereum and the rest. Uh, and then after that, let's talk about NFTs. All right. So I, I basically look at my portfolio as uh, a barbell, which is Bitcoin is the most conservative asset that I could hold uh, in this space. I, I joke that it's the riskiest asset the Wall Street guys see in their portfolio. It's the most conservative asset that the crypto folks see, right? So you're kind of sitting in the middle. I think that's a great place to have majority of your portfolio. It'll be a really great return compared to legacy uh, finance returns. And it's probably going to drag behind some of the really crazy, innovative, you know, high risk stuff. Um, so that's where majority of the portfolio is. And then basically I go to the farthest end of the risk curve with, uh, with a small portion of the portfolio. And the thought process is uh, one, I've got some advantages in terms I get to see a lot of deals. Two, I'm an LP in a couple of funds. So I get to see some of the stuff they're doing. Uh, and three is there's like an intellectual curiosity, but these are for the most part, you know, pretty small checks and uh, it's asymmetric. And so if you put a small check in and it goes up a bunch, yeah, it could turn into some pretty material money, but also if I lose the money, you know, I'm not going to lose sleep at night on any one investment. So I, I, I think of that barbell is really the way to uh, to do it. What ends up not making it into the portfolio in any material way is basically the stuff in the middle. So if you go on coin market cap and it's like, you know, numbers two through a hundred, they usually actually, I, I kind of skip over those for the most part. So you're, you're like you're you're not into ETH, Solana, Cardano, anything that didn't come in very early on. You're not into. So I, I don't actively allocate to those uh, mainly because my thought process is that the risk of uh, let's say numbers two through fifty or two through twenty five uh, is still much higher than the risk for Bitcoin. 
and the difference in returns is not that different. Like if Bitcoin goes up, they'll go up. They'll probably go up more than Bitcoin, just market structure. Uh, but in terms of the risk reward, Bitcoin is the best risk reward. And those things are uh, super risky. So if you're going to take a lot of risk, like just go all the way out to the end of the risk curve, right? And get the most potential return for the risk you take rather than get kind of decent enough. Uh, so, so you'll invest uh, a small check in an IDO that's at the $10 million market cap, but you won't invest in a cello, which is somewhere in the 20s, 30s. Yeah. And, and the other part, and it's a little hard to kind of back into uh, without doing like a bunch of work on it, is some of the funds where I'm an LP, either directly or even indirect exposure to some of these funds, they're the ones who have a lot of exposure to, let's say, numbers two through 100, right? And so like, I, I, it's unfair to say I have no exposure because it's basically I gave money to somebody and then they went and made investment decisions uh, that I had no control over. And your strategy um, enables you to say that you're not investing in shitcoins. <laughs> well, it, here's my general take is that I, I actually, uh, and a lot of people, for some reason, they don't talk about this, but like most of the people who create shit coins, launch shit coins, work for shit coins, et cetera, what are they doing? They're trying to get more Bitcoin, right? Like how many projects did we see go and do an ICO, get a bunch of money and then put it in Bitcoin? And so in some way, like, what do you do in the legacy financial system, right? You basically make investments to get more dollars. Right. You take dollars, you invest it, you get more dollars when you sell the asset. And I think that's a lot of what's going on in like the crypto world is sure, maybe some stable coins, maybe some people treat ETH the way that I would think of Bitcoin. But I do think a lot of people treat Bitcoin as like, how do I make investments in other things to get more Bitcoin? And so it, it's again, not just it's just not as clear as I think people want to make it of like, you know, shitcoin good, shitcoin bad. Um, and ultimately, I think the part that especially the Bitcoin community probably has the biggest issue is, uh, you know, it's the project to say, hey, we're decentralized and they're not right. It's like the misleading marketing, that type of stuff. But if you ask many people in the Bitcoin community, you're like, hey, do you have 100 percent Bitcoin or do you have like 80 percent Bitcoin and 20 percent you invest in other things to get more Bitcoin? Most people are probably in the latter camp um, and that might not be digital assets that could be stocks that could be bonds it could be real estate that you know it doesn't have to be one type of asset the goal is to get more bitcoin right and so uh uh working is one way to do that through income obviously investments is another um but but i do think it, it's really fascinating when i see you know some of these projects i look at their treasuries and i'm like what do you guys have in there and it's like 60 70 bitcoin right and you're just like oh wow like okay uh obviously there there's kind of this consensus i think that people think it's very low risk um, and that it's got kind of durability to the asset over you know some period of time, uh, which makes me feel better about having the the Bitcoin position personally. So, what are your thoughts about NFTs? And I'll just say I, I fell deeply into the rabbit hole, and I'm addicted to NFTs. So be what, nice. So, uh, what what is your take on NFTs? And then I'll tell you mine. I I, I love what I see is it attracts a new type of audience into crypto. So I've been shouting crypto, crypto, Bitcoin, Ethereum, smart contracts, blockchain, and I would usually lose. I found out that Bitcoin is the, you know, hedge against government, limited supply. That's easy. I go through Ethereum. I now need to explain smart contracts, blockchain. I go down through, as you said, two to a hundred. That's, that's getting super complex. I lose 90, 90% of the audience. Suddenly all of my uh, degenerate friends are buying uh, NFTs? They're because it's you know because it's it's tangible. 
they feel like it's funny it's different than crypto it's tangible they're like hey look at my ape look at my doodle look at my world of women they feel like they bought something real and i see a very different type of audience coming in and i think that audience is also bringing in culture so these are not your crypto native people suddenly i see my dj friends my musician friends my artist friends or people you know authors of books who are trying to figure out what's happening there and looking at things like damien hurst like real art so i i think the fact that it's bringing in more people the way i describe it is i think DeFi is probably 15 20 years ahead of traditional financial institutions so uh, DeFi is like way way into the future but it was a group of super geeks designing super complex protocols that nobody could understand and now suddenly you have real people and culture with guitars and hipsters coming into that island of DeFi. And so, so I think it's great to see that it's just bringing in, you know, Hollywood, LA, non-Miami uh, uh, non uh, hardcore crypto people in. Yeah. So my general sense, uh, I first looked at it as like from a pure investment standpoint rather than like market structure. And from an investment standpoint, uh, similar to how Bitcoin is digital gold, uh, this was going to be digital art would be bigger than regular art, right? Was kind of the initial thought process. Um, and I, I would say that I, I wasn't super early to it, but in the summer of 2020, really started to spend a lot of attention on it um, and uh, uh, had pretty deep conviction that like, hey, this was going to work. What I missed is that it's so much more than that. And I think that we've seen, you know, a lot of work done on this in terms of like digital property rights and, you know, whatever kind of your nomenclature description of it uh, is, it's very obvious that like somebody's going to figure out how to use this mechanism to create immense value. The big question is like how many of the current iterations, if you think of this as kind of the 1.0 wave of NFTs, are the ones that end up being sustainable and, and durable versus these are all the right ideas, but similar to the internet, you know, a decade after they're first tried, then we'll get the real ones. I don't know what that is. And so ultimately, if you go back and use history as a guide, like you should have invested in all of them because if you invested in every social network and then you were an investor in Facebook, like Facebook paid for all the losers, right? Um, same thing probably here as well is like you'll lose money on a lot of stuff. But if you're a pure, just optimizing for capitalistic kind of intent, uh, the volume of deployment of capital and the pursuit of the power law is almost more important uh, than trying to be smarter than the market. Problem is a lot of people don't have enough money. They don't have the patience. And you, you can kind of trick yourself into being like, I've seen this idea tried three, four, five different times and like it didn't work. So then you don't make the sixth or seventh investment and then it works. And so it's just uh, investing's hard, right? <laughs> and uh, you get humbled very quickly. So are you going to ape in or punk in? No, I, I haven't bought any of those. I, I will say that uh, I had some of the um, uh, early ferocious pieces uh, and, and I really enjoyed that. I think ferocious is incredibly talented. Um, and uh, for whatever reason, like the artistic aspect of it was like very interesting to me. Um, I see the apes, I see the punks. I've got a bunch of friends with, uh, with them. Uh, and, and for better or worse, I'm like, I'm not paying, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for, uh, for the NFT. Come on, Bob, you can afford it. <laughs> what, you're not going to pay $100,000 for a JPEG? <laughs> listen, I, I get why people are doing it. My friends are all going to make a lot of money. 
it's just uh it's not like the most intellectually interesting thing to me to like speculate on like which one is the next one to go up a lot and so uh i'm sure we'll buy some stuff here and there uh but it's, i just don't spend that much time on it too which is like another thing is like if you have the feeling like you don't have an advantage then like hopefully you're smart enough to realize like i could be the fool at the table so like let me not even play this game uh, so it sounds like maybe I should just convince Yoni to tell me the good ones and I'll just do whatever he does. It I'll, like you, I'll add you to my whitelist WhatsApp group. No problem. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, I, I also, by the way, I love the community aspect of it. Like this is like Bitcoin and East Twitter were quite nasty. Like uh, I, I, I'm, I'm both, you know, Bitcoin and East, they would say fan. Uh, but the wars between Bitcoin fans and maximalists and ETH were always very, very nasty. So Bitcoin and crypto Twitter wasn't that nice. NFT Twitter is like the sweetest thing in the world. It's like you, you, you got out of this turf war and you got onto this uh, space like from, uh, what was it, the Lego movie when they're on the clouds <laughs> and everybody's jumping. So the only thing I'll say to that is, yes, that's probably true because NFTs have been going up. Let's see what happens when they go down 90%, right? I think that's that, that's the uh, benefit and curse of, uh, of the crypto community is like they've all seen the 85% crash and everyone gets super cranky and, you know, acts like idiots on the Internet. So hopefully that doesn't happen to the NFT world. I saw, I saw a video uh, a couple of days ago and uh, they were sort of talking about market stocks. And um, this guy was like... Um, markets are going down he's like oh no and then he's like crypto's going down. he's like oh no and he goes what about nfts he goes oh weirdly no nfts they're doing they're doing good <laughs> and it's just like how in this sort of situation but like you say Yoni, it's uh it's a strong community and if we know if we want to know what nfts to buy we can liquidity, just... that's another interesting thing you get liquidity pulled out like mm. with, with any token assets usually even if your low liquidity prices are going down in NFTs, when prices are going down or ETH, etc., all you see is liquidity going down, but people aren't selling because it, it just becomes less liquid by definition. They're non-fungible tokens, so they're much significantly less liquid. Yeah, I agree with that. Okay, so we've got a, a few quick fire questions to, to finish for you, Pomp. Um, we'll sort of go through them one by one. Short answers are, are good here. Um, your favorite city in the world? My favorite city in the world. Uh, whew, that's a great question. I would say I'm going to pick three. I'm going to cheat. I'm going to say uh, New York City, uh, I wish I just love. Two is Raleigh, North Carolina, where I grew up. Or three is Lake Como in um, uh, Italy, okay. which is just beautiful. And uh, my wife and I have enjoyed visiting. Okay, so a city you've never been to, but you want to visit. A city I've never been to, but I want to visit. Uh, it'd have to be somewhere that's like pretty insane. Um, I, I just watched a documentary on uh, Nazare in, uh, where is it, Portugal, I think it is. Um, and uh, they got the 100 foot waves. Like, that'd be cool to go to. I've been to Israel. I see Yoni pointing. <laughs> I loved it. Uh, so, Portugal uh, just yeah, happens to be a tax be, haven for crypto, too. Hey. Yeah, it, it would just be somewhere that like is like a cool place uh, that I'd have to pick. Cool. NBA or NFL? Oh, I, I uh, am much more of an NFL fan than uh, NBA for sure. Uh, pizza or McDonald's? Everyone knows that I think McDonald's is the best restaurant in America because of the consistency <laughs> and uh, and great uh, efficiency. 
but uh, I do love some great pizzas. I go with pizza over McDonald's. Oh, controversial that. Um, who is the best guest you've interviewed? The best guest I've ever interviewed. Um, it would definitely be somebody that wasn't necessarily uh, investment related. You know, you know who I actually would say? Uh, there's a bunch of people I could choose from, but one that just popped into my head. I interviewed a 12-year-old kid who uh, is based in London, and he <clears throat> made like $5 million selling NFTs. And my brothers and I tried to convince him to uh, make a donation to his elementary school so that they would name it after him. So you could tell the teachers, like, you're in my school. <laughs> awesome. Did he make the little whales? Cool. That's awesome. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah the whales. Uh, ben Benjamin. And uh, for, for me, it was just cool to see, like, literally a kid and his dad and he learned a bunch and he made some money and like just watching the whole thing it, it just walked away and i was super uh, uh kind of inspired by it so i'd pick him um trader or investor oh i suck at trading definitely an investor <laughs> um the most harmful thing to bitcoin price short term Somebody uh, with a big audience tweeting something stupid, whether it's a politician, whether it's uh, an entrepreneur with a big audience uh, or uh, or even somebody in the community. But I think that like the, the most immediate short term uh, price impacts are usually things that are like spread on Twitter. Right. Whether they're true or not, those have the, uh, the most impact. Or Satoshi selling his million. <laughs> yeah, that wallet gets yeah. active uh outside of bitcoin what do you think will be the second biggest crypto in five years stable coins by far so like as a group i you know maybe one of them emerges as like the clear winner maybe there's a couple of them but stable coins uh for sure cool last question and all three of you can can answer this one and and it's not investment advice we'll just get that out there do we see 100k bitcoin in 2022 Yoni? <laughs> I'd say 50-50. <laughs> Sit on the fence. <laughs> Here's the fence and Yoni's right here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought that for sure we were going to see it uh, last year in 2021. And when that didn't happen, uh, I, I think I said that when it was at like 10K, it went to 70 essentially. Uh, so like directionally correct, but not on a magnitude basis. Uh, after that didn't happen, I've promised myself that uh, I'm out of the uh, the price suggestion or price prediction mm -hmm. game, uh, because ultimately, I think what we're starting to realize now is a lot of things that were true in the Bitcoin uh, kind of market previously are not true today. So, for example, when you add in Wall Street institutions and a lot of hedge funds and traders, they act much differently than previous cohorts of Bitcoin holders. And so it's very hard to kind of unpack what's going to happen in the future when you're not just simply analyzing uh, the same environment at, at which the moment you're doing now. So uh, I'll go 50-50 with Yoni only because that means that I don't have to answer. What, what's in, in your view, it's like twisting a bit the question, probability of us seeing Bitcoin at $200,000 by the end of 2025? Yeah, I mean, the longer that we go out, the more confident yeah, I am. That, that's like, that's why I went to till 2025. Yeah, like, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just like classic, right? Of like, the longer the time horizon, the more people that come into the market, the more people that come into the market uh, with a fixed supply asset, that means increased demand, fixed supply asset price has to go up. And like, you know, you, you put it out 50 years and you're like, yeah, it probably hits a million bucks. Well, like, that's not necessarily like groundbreaking. 
right? Because like, guess what? If you buy a hundred thousand dollar house and you wait 50 years, it's probably worth a million bucks, right? Like it, it's not so much even just like a, a Bitcoin thing as much as it is just like you also are accounting for the devaluation of fiat currencies at the same time. So, uh, you know, much higher probability at 2025 than in 2022, right? For whatever price, you know, you want to pick that's higher than where we are today. Yeah, for sure. Pomp, I, I know you're, you're stretched for time. Thank you so much for, for coming on. And incredibly, we've got, so we've got Josh in Australia, Yoni in Israel, myself in London, Pomp, you're in, in the States. It's incredible, this uh, this, uh, this, ha- this happening right now. And I appreciate it so much, both Yoni and, and, and Pomp, for, for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, the internet's the future. So uh, as Satoshi said, you know, maybe go get some Bitcoin in case it catches on. <laughs> so Pomp. Yoni, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Pomp. Thank you very much. Thanks, Josh. All right, bye, guys. Thanks, guys. See ya. Cheers, guys. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Digest and Invest from eToro. For more information, visit eToro.com.